Good evening, everybody. I got two good evenings. <laughs> good evening, everybody. I'm glad I'm here with you tonight. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope. I don't get to come to Lower Town. Actually, more often lately, it's really a joy to be here. Um, and uh, tonight, I'm really excited uh, to share some things, a lot of things, actually, that I've learned um, this week in getting to really read this passage and dive into it and study it. Um, and so let's let's uh, get rolling. Brian is um, is hopefully sleeping right now or resting. Uh, he's just a few weeks into his second child and uh, I was excited to give him a little relief. So continue praying for the Silver family and that. And um, yeah, let's get started here. Um, we're in a series in First Peter uh, that we're calling Between Two Worlds because we see as we look through this book and we continue to look through the book, we uh, see uh, Peter teaching the people um, uh, in the church, uh, they think probably in Asia Minor, often this letter was used all over the place to teach them what it looks like to kind of live between two worlds. Not, not yet, this, the world that's going to be there when Jesus returns and makes things right, but not in the necessarily the life, the world that uh, is around them. And so there's this in-between we kind of live in until Jesus returns. And so a lot of what we're looking at in the book of First Peter is, is what it looks like to live in that world and often looks very different than the world around us that we are in. Um, and today specifically, that I want to share a, a moment in my life that happened about, I think it was about 12 or 13 years ago. I'm the unhappy one on the right there. <laughs> I look really sad in this picture. I want to explain to you what's happening here. This is my friend Jack, um, and we were actually, uh, this is a picture from our small group. So this is, about, I think, about 13 years ago. We were in a small group. We lived in Fargo, uh, North Dakota then, and Jack and I uh, met because Jack was a, a volunteer youth leader. He mentored a bunch of young men, um, and, and I, that was my job, is to oversee the youth ministry. So we first met there. We ended up being a, a small group with him and his wife, Sarah, and we were actually at a baby shower. So our small, someone in our small group, we went through a season in that small group where everybody uh, was having babies uh, except my wife and I, and so many of our small group nights turned into these like things that we were about to play some kind of game. I think that's why we're wearing something. All I remember from that night is that I had to suffer through drinking out of a baby bottle, and it was a lot harder than I thought it would be. Um, and Jack destroyed me in that competition. Um, that might be actually what this picture is. I think I'm moping because I was, I was being killed in a series of baby shower events. Um, if you've been to a baby shower, uh, they do events where you have to like eat out of diapers and things. It's really strange, actually. Um, and as a man, often I don't go to those. Often my wife goes to baby showers, but uh, we did it as a group. Uh, I think Jack's smiling because of that. Um, I probably had some other reasons to kind of complain. Jack also, uh, interesting enough, in this, in this moment, I had met Jack about a year before this, and it was right after he had had some pretty wild surgery. He had actually had both of his lungs replaced. So this man you're looking at actually has someone else's lungs. Well, they're his now. But before that, they were owned by someone else. They were. Um, Jack had a very rare disease that um, quickly kind of deteriorated his lungs, and he had this kind of rare surgery, and both of his lungs were replaced. Um, and because of that, Jack was on all sorts of medications for his immune system. And um, he, the joke was at small group, uh, as, as much as it's a joke, that when we'd go around and pray, I'd say, well, I had a, I've had a hard week. I'm kind of tired, or like, I've stayed up a lot watching 
DVDs. At that point, we watched DVDs. There wasn't Netflix um, in that way. And, uh, and he would say, oh, yeah, I've heard a week. We found out that I have a different kind of cancer because of the immune medication. But we're, we're, we, we'll be good. And the joke became like he was always suffering from like strange illnesses because of all this uh, medication he was taking for his immune system. They gave him about seven years to live after his uh, lung surgery. Um, and he actually lived uh, longer than that. Jack actually... Uh, uh, died, I think it's eight years ago now, in December. Um, and throughout that time, he um, had lots of illnesses, and eventually uh, cancer kind of took over a lot of, of his body. When, when The last time I saw Jack, he was uh, very, very small. He was in a wheelchair. Um, he mostly spent his day in bed. Uh, mir- uh, miraculous things happened in his life. It, because of the medication, they were told they could never have children, and they actually ended up having two children in that those years that he had left, um, uh, there was like studies done on him because he wasn't supposed to be able to have kids and they couldn't figure out why he was having kids and he'd go to the doctor and, and they would say, we can't figure out why. And he would say, well, it's Jesus. <laughs> and they would laugh at him. <laughs> They're like, oh, okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> um, I got to see Jack a, a few days before he died and uh, we had moved here by then and got to go back and see him. Um, and uh, it was really I didn't know what to say, right, to a friend who's laying in bed. His two young boys are playing in the other room with his wife, uh, and he's like, any day, right? He's saying, any day could be my last day, and, uh, and I feel really bad, so I say kind of silly things that you don't know what to say when someone's suffering like that. And I say, oh, I'm so sorry, Jack. I wish I could take your place and things like, oh, this is, this is just not fair, um, and he would stop me, and he would say, I'm, I'm really thankful for this, Drew. Um, and he would share often over and over the same story. Before he, uh, any of this happened to him, he was like a, like a bodybuilder guy. He was super ripped. Uh, he was very cocky, like he wasn't actually that fun to be around. <laughs> and he was a very soft, sweet, gentle man. Uh, after these things happened, it really humbled him. And he says, if I hadn't had this opportunity to suffer in this way and actually show off that I have hope in something, many people wouldn't know Jesus. And that was true. There's story after story after story of people who met Jack and said, how can you still like, be smiling in pictures? How can you still be joyful? Um, and he would get the opportunity to share about his hope in Christ, which before he said uh, his hope in Christ was kind of a, Plan B, it was like, well, I'm tough and I'm in control and I can do what I want to do. But once he really started suffering, he realized the way I suffer actually is going to be an opportunity. Um, And we had right before he died, they had kind of a dinner celebration of life. He wanted to have his funeral before he died because he wanted to see everybody there. So like when a dying man says that you have a funeral before he's dead. (laughs) So we had a celebration of life funeral for him. Uh, But he was in the room and he was still alive. Uh, And there were people there that shared stories of like at one after another of coming to Christ because they witnessed him suffering and how he suffered. They couldn't believe that he wasn't angry and bitter, um, but he was actually joyful and um, hopeful. Um, Jack is the one I think of when I think of how to suffer. And I don't suffer to that extent, like at least physically, um, but he's one that I think of, and today that's the opportunity we get. This next uh, small part of First Peter, we get to look at what uh, Peter 
calls us to suffer and how we can look to Christ and how we suffer. And so, um, uh, yeah, I hope that we can start learning that. I, some of you probably already know that well, but um, I pray today that would be, if nothing else, we leave here realizing that the, in the way we suffer, um, others will hopefully know Christ through that. We, uh, right before this in, in 1 Peter, we get a little... Uh, we get a little summary. Right away in Peter, the beginning chapter of Peter, we hear about that we're reborn, the, the theology of our identity as being reborn and new people. And then we get into 1 Peter 2, the second chapter, uh, and we see this verse. But you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into wonderful night. Because you're these people now, you get the opportunity to tell the world how good this is how good God is. And then it continues, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, this, right, we're in this kind of in-between two worlds thing, um, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I think that phrase they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day that he visits. The, the way we live out our lives is going to actually let people know who Christ is. And um, that, I think, is what gets expanded now as we look. Last week, we looked at what it looked like to be under authority um, in a broader sense, in government and just in our lives. And today, we zoom into another area of life and what it would look like to live in a way that would make people around us actually desire to know that God and that one day when Jesus returns, they would want to see him, which is good. So that's where we start today, continuing that. In the beginning of our passage here, which we read before, I'm going to actually just walk us through it, not read the whole thing at once. We're just going to kind of walk through it together. It starts like this. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those that are harsh. So Peter is saying, slaves, or a lot of translations, servants, out of fear of God, you should submit yourself to your masters. Not just the ones that are good, but actually also the masters that are harsh. This seems um, kind of insane. I, I mean, the first reading of this, Peter's saying, hey, you're enslaved by people, you should obey them. Because if I was writing this, I would say, you should run away. That's terrible, right? This seems to be kind of a, especially I think in our culture and when we see the word slaves, I think it's really important for us to stop. And I want to kind of unpack the, what's happening actually at this time and what Peter is doing in this passage before we continue walking through this so that that beginning statement, the slaves in reverent fear of God submit to your masters, we understand what's going on there so that we don't, um, that doesn't get, we don't get lost kind of in the rest of this as to what is really happening there. We're going to look first to uh, um, Tom Schreiner, and he kind of explains what that would mean in the moment that Peter's writing this. People became slaves by being captured in wars, kidnapped, or born into a slave household. Those facing economic hardships might choose to sell themselves into slavery in order to survive. Many slaves lived miserable Miserably, particularly those who served in the mines. Other slaves, however, served as doctors or teachers, managers, musicians, artisans, and could even own their other slaves. It would not be unusual for a slave to be better educated than the master. Those who are familiar with slavery from the history of the United States must be aware of, impose, uh, of imposing our historical experience on the New Testament times. 
that switch, yeah. Uh, since slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on race, and the American slave owners discouraged education of slaves, still, even that being said, slaves in the Greco-Roman world were under the control of their masters, and hence they had no independence, no independent existence. They could suffer brutal mistreatment at the hands of their owners, and children born into slavery belonged to masters rather than parents who gave them birth. Slaves had no legal rights, and masters could beat them, brand them, and abuse them. When I was um, first a Christian, I remember being in a Bible study, and, and a passage about slavery came up, and quickly someone dismissed, like, slaves back then wasn't the same, so don't worry about it, um, which now seems kind of wild that that was a thing. Um, but I just, I want to read this and his quick history of this so that we understand that it, it's, it still is terrible. They're still not treated as full humans, and they still, even in this time that Peter's talking to them, they were beaten and, and treated harshly. Uh, their children were taken from them. Um, it, it, was t- it was terrible, too. So I, I don't want to dismiss this and say the word meant servants, and so they were just people who were, like, working for people. Um, even if they were a doctor and they were became a slave of someone because maybe they owed them money or something, this person now became their master and can do what they wanted with them. So he's talking to these people who are in harsh conditions. It's not the same thing as we see in American history in slavery, but similar in the sense it's, it's terrible. Um, and these people were not looked at as fully people or even independent or had freedom. Other things that are helpful to understand is, actually, this is really important to understand because historically, throughout um, the church's history, and even in American history in the 1700s, 1800s, uh, people would stand in churches and from the front, they would use this actual passage to encourage slave owners to tell their slaves that God tells them to obey. In the same way, uh, I've had parents, <laughs> I've heard parents yelling at their child that like, the Bible tells you to obey. Uh, like, don't read the next verses that say you shouldn't be screaming that at your child. But um, th- this was actually used, like this passage we're reading tonight, you'd come to church and they'd say, oh, we're in the next passage of, they wouldn't have PowerPoint slides, but they would be saying, we're in the next First Peter passage. And then they'd say, hey, yeah, go home and tell your slaves. They're supposed to be obeying you, right? So we have a, this is a, there's a real history here. Um, and we want to clarify that that's not true. I'd say that's heretical. It's unbiblical. In fact, throughout the Bible, we don't see that. Tom continues to uh, explain that to us. It's crucial to note that the New Testament nowhere commends slavery as a social structure. It nowhere roots it in the created order, as a slavery is an institution ordained by God. The contrast with marriage is remarkable at this very point. God ordained the institution of marriage, but slavery was invented by human beings, not by God. The New Testament regulates the institution of slavery as it exists in society, but does not command it per se. Hence, Peter's words on slavery should not be interpreted as an endorsement for the system, even if he does not denounce the institution. So just as we start this passage, kind of the elephant in the room, let's, we want to be clear that this is not a passage uh, that actually, Peter's not writing this to explain what he thinks about slavery. He's writing this to people who are enslaved to tell them what it looks like to, to follow the Jesus in their situation. Um, the thing that I found most interesting about this that just screamed the gospel 
was that in this time period, um, in Greco-Roman culture, there would be all these philosophers, uh, Aristotle and all these people who would write these things they called moral household codes. And so they would explain a household code. They'd get with uh, other leaders, and they would explain, this is how you should function in your life, um, in different areas of your life. And if you would do this, then this is how society will work properly. So if you do what you're supposed to in your area, in your vocation, or... Um, in your position, then all of society will work well and we will all prosper and we will all, well, some will prosper, but we'll all be happy. And if we throw that off, then it throws off our whole culture and our culture could crumble. So they actually wrote these codes that they would distribute to people in a similar way that we meet to remind ourselves of the gospel and think about what it means to live as a Christian. They would meet to talk about what does it look like to live as a good Roman, right? Or a Greek citizen. So they're the main the main uh, way they would write this is they would write a code that would say, here's who you are, your identity, much like Peter did in this first chapter of this. And then they would say, here's what it looks like to live under an emperor. Here's what it looks like to live as a slave. And here's what it looks like to live in your marriage context. So when Peter's writing this letter, he's writing it as if he is rewriting the household codes of their time to say, you're aware of this thing that we're all taught culturally, these household codes. And he's saying, I'm going to rewrite these codes. So the kind of main four things is these were all taught to the people who were in authority. And they would teach them that you were born into a position. So what you're born into is where the gods want you. So, so don't leave that position because there's a reason you're there to keep balance in our culture. They would teach them that you should, your worship was determined by your master. So who in char, whoever was in charge of you, you should worship in the way they worship and the things they worship, um, and everything will stay okay. And, also, and, and in fact, sometimes the people did worshiped on behalf of their masters. So instead of their masters having to go give sacrifice things, they could do it on behalf of their masters so the gods would be happy. And thirdly, they would say uh, th that the thing was written to the authorities. So they would gather the people in charge and say, now go tell your subjects or the people under you they should obey. So you should go back to your slaves and your servants and tell them, you should go back to your wife and tell her that she should submit to you. You should go back to the emperor. You should go back to your people and say that gods have put them in that place to actually worship them and obey. So that's, it's really interesting. This is the basic moral codes in that culture that were actually being taught, kind of preached, uh, as they gathered to make sure everyone stayed um, in their place. And then Peter walks us through the new gospel household codes. And he actually uses the same language they use, and he says you are reborn into God's household. So what you're actually born into isn't really the end. You get reborn, and we're all actually together, united, one in God's household. So no longer... Uh, are you just put into a place and that's where you're stuck, but you're actually, you're actually born for something different. He uses actually similar language that they would use in their household codes. And secondly, he says, you now worship Jesus, who most likely is not your master's religion, and actually out of the, the hopes that the way you are going to suffer, which we're going to get to, the way you're going to suffer uh, and submit, we pray will actually lead them and change them. So actually now Peter is encouraging the way you're going to, to work and the way you're going to suffer will actually cause your masters to follow your God, which is literally flipped from the other one. And lastly, this, this is the thing that's, that's, that wrecked me this week. Um, it would have been 
insane for them to write anything to these people who were considered uh, not free, these people who were considered not even fully citizens, not even fully the same level of human. But Peter actually writes this letter to slaves, to wives, and to the people under the emperor, which was pretty scandalous. Those people weren't supposed to be addressed. Those people weren't even supposed to necessarily be able to read or write always, um, which is very gospelly, right? That's how we see Jesus do it throughout the gospels. He goes to these people and he says, he goes to the prostitutes and he goes to the sinners and everyone is angry with him because he's hanging out with sinners, right? And we see Peter say, Peter doing the same thing here um, culturally. These are just, I just want to set some of these things up. I think these are really helpful um, as we go. Karen Jobes, who we keep looking to as we walk through this, she's really been helpful as we were looking through the book, says this about this. While some modern interpreters consider the New Testament household codes to be hopelessly chauvinistic, they fail to read the codes against their contemporary literature. So she's saying if we actually compare it to what's being written there, uh, which shows that the New Testament writers actually subverted cultural expectations by elevating the slave and the wife with unparalleled dignity. They actually are talking to these people as people, as image bearers. Um, and not just image bearers, but image bearers that through Christ have the power to actually change the culture they're in. Um, it's a big deal what's happening here as Peter writes this. Let's um, continue. So what does that look like? He's going to unpack a little bit more. What does it look like to actually submit ourselves to masters that are good and even harsh ones? For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is commendable before God. So now he is showing us kind of two ways of suffering. He's saying it's commendable before God. That would be the way I want to go, whatever that is. Um, and then there's one that isn't. So there's one that she says, if you look in verse 20, it says, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing something wrong um, and endure This happens in our house, not the beating part, but the <laughs> doing wrong. Our, my child will do something. Let's say, hypothetically, uh, I ask the wrong question at dinner and I get slapped in the face from a almost teenager in my household, hypothetically, right? So there's a consequence to that, right? You, you shouldn't slap your dad. That's in the Bible, there's, right? Like in John 2, it says, don't slap your dad. Uh, so there's a consequence to that. She can't, hypothetically, she can't believe that there's a consequence to that. What are you talking about? I have to go to my room and sit in my room for the rest of the night. All I did was slap you in the face. That's not fair. That seems actually pretty fair that you're just going to have to sit in your room. Uh, and we have a long, long, long discussion, which I finally realized she's actually just stalling, trying not to go to her room. So then we get her up in her room, hypothetically. So, um, right, there's consequences to real things. If I talk poorly at work, if I'm in the, if I'm in the break room and I'm talking about my boss and how I, he's, he doesn't know what he's doing and he's an idiot and why does he make us do these things and then everybody gets quiet and you realize he's standing behind you, right? There's consequences of that. And those aren't because, um, because I'm like a persecution because of my faith, right? Uh, those are because I did something wrong and now I'm enduring that, enduring that suffering. 
which we all, I mean, we all know how that works, right? In our house, we just say there's consequences to things, good and bad consequences. Um, but he's saying here, there's that, right? And then there's actually just doing good and still suffering, which is a lot harder. And he's saying, if you're doing good and what's right, you should just endure that suffering. He does not say, if you're doing good and it's something unjust happens to you, you are treated harshly, you should retaliate. You have a right to say those things about your boss because he is not a good boss, right? Which probably you feel that way while you're saying those things. If, if, you're, if you're doing good though, you should endure it. Because why? Because it's actually commendable before God. God actually blesses you. He actually is encouraged by that. Because um, when I get hurt, I want to hurt, right? When I get hurt by someone and I'm suffering, I want to lash out. Even if it's not that person, if I'm just suffering, I'm more likely to lash out, right? Or, or say something unkind. Um, and especially if I feel like it's unjust. It just seems, this seems um, really hard that Peter would call us to this. That even when you're doing the right thing, and you're suffering, you should endure it. This is actually the, the um, I realized this week as I was looking at this, this is actually the way I often assess my suffering. I will say, if I'm suffering, then whatever I did is not good, even if it probably was good. I think culturally we see this happen. If I'm suffering, then the thing that was happening probably isn't good. Even if the thing I'm doing is what I can see that Scripture calls me to, what God has for me. But if I start suffering, I think, that must not be good. So then I add in my book of what to do and not to do. Don't do that again because it causes suffering. Because in the end, the end game for me, right, if I believe the world that I'm in, the goal is to be happy, not suffer. So whatever you have to do to not suffer is the goal. Um, and so therefore, I equate if something is, if I'm suffering, the thing wasn't good. And I, and I start changing how I do things and how I talk to people and what I do all by if I'm suffering things, then that thing wasn't good, I shouldn't do it again. Rather than understanding, I can actually do good and suffer. And actually, by following Christ, often I probably will suffer. Um, so where historically, uh, uh, where have we seen this happen where people have just endured suffering even while doing good? And, and is it even valuable? Obviously, Peter says it here. Probably should do it, but I, does it work? Um, this week, actually, aside from this, I was reading some history, and it, and it collided with this passage, which is really kind of cool how that works. Uh, this is a famous photograph of Rosa Parks. You know the story of Rosa Parks? She was she refused to sit in the back of the bus, um, which incited she was then um, arrested for that. Um, and eventually that started um, what, what would be known as a, a bus boycott in Montgomery. Um, and actually, she was asked about that. She was arrested. And they said, well, I, weren't you scared to, like, get arrested, you know? And she said, well, you must never be fearful of what you're doing when it's right. I thought, wow, that's pretty close to the passage right <laughs> today. Well done, Rosa Parks. And she was arrested for that. And just days after that, um, they started uh, the M Montgomery bus boycott where um, African-Americans and, and other people uh, 
refused to ride the buses. And actually, I was unaware of this for a year, over a year actually, they refused to ride buses. That's a big deal. That kind of changes the bus industry uh, when people aren't riding it. And also, because of her actions there, um, she uh, encouraged, inspired another person named Martin Luther King Jr. to see for the first time what it looked like to suffer well and not just retaliate with, with violence or even just harsh language. It was the first time he had experienced nonviolent protest. He said this, this seeing this and being a part of this was his first time. And he went on to be one of the people historically in America that we look to. What does it look like to protest, to change, change the culture without, without violence, without retaliation? In fact, when asked about it, he said nonviolent resistance is a courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. I like that, right? That almost sounds like the gospel. The Christian doctrine of love operating through the Gandhian, he loved how Gandhi did this, method of nonviolence, that sounds less gospelly, Gandhian, but the method of nonviolence was one of the most potent weapons available to oppressed people in their struggle for freedom. There's a lot of like uh, battle language in that, right? Like potent weapons, and he's talking about what does it look like to suffer well, to not necessarily retaliate, but actually have hold power to change things just by nonviolence. Um, and so for a whole year, there was empty buses. There's this whole series of photographs of empty buses in Montgomery for that year. Um, and eventually actually was able to change the segregation laws um, at the end of that year, uh, little by little uh, in that time, in 1956. My mom stayed, was with us this week. She had spring break. She's a teacher. And we were talking about this. Uh, and she said, I have no idea this was going on. I was a kid. I had no idea this was going on um, in the world. I just had heard that there's these people who are angry at buses in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, it's just, it's interesting to me that that's how that works. He actually had, he actually made like a code. Martin Luther King Jr. made a code of what his principles of nonviolence. I'm just reading these because I think it's interesting as we move to the end of this passage and we see and we sh they share how Jesus embodied this, how he did this perfectly. Um, it's interesting. And, and when you read uh, some of his history, that's where he learned a lot of this. These are kind of his six, just real quick as we keep going here. He said nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. So often we might look at that as weak. Nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. It's not about hurting, right? Retaliating. It's actually about how do we take time to understand the other person, actually connect to a person. It's a powerful thing in our culture even today. Nonviolence seeks to defend injustice, not people. So we're actually they're actually fighting against the injustice, not necessarily the people there. In our in our context, we would hope those people would know. Christ nonviolence holds the suffering, can educate and transform. Nonviolence chooses love. Instead of hate, nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. In his explanation of that one, he says, we believe that God will make things right one day and will take care of these things. And he actually quotes in one of his uh, explanations of this, he actually quotes our passage today, um, that they believe there is a, a judge who will, who will judge rightly, justly one day. So to be commendable before God, we need to learn to suffer and endure well, uh, which is really hard, especially in a culture that thinks suffering is pretty high on the list for uh, 
things to avoid. Um, and so, um, what do we do? I think this um, is helpful uh, in understanding this. While passages such as this one can be used to encourage Christians on their journey of faith, we should not, it should not be used to encourage Christians to passively endure suffering in a situation they can work to resolve. This is, this is what attention is for me. So I just hang out and let people hurt me, like just let people take advantage of me. That, doesn't, that also doesn't seem to make sense or even to be what Christ calls me to. It said, Jesus' suffering and death were not passive and purposeless, but a deliberate sacrifice of himself for the benefit of others. Christians must ask themselves whether their suffering is benefiting others or whether it is merely a stubborn perseverance that allows others to exploit them with no good end in view. I like the stubborn perseverance. So what is the intention of your suffering? What's the purpose of your suffering? It is important to interpret the ethical requirements for living a Christian life contextually. So if we're being called to suffer and endure well, even when it's harsh, even when it's unjust, uh, how do we know that we're doing that right? Well, it's because it's purposeful. So how is your suffering purposeful? Well, thankfully, Peter explains, what does it look like to live suffer purposely? And he points to Jesus, which is what you should do. Well done, Peter. Uh, let's read on. To this we are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Just steps, right? I said footsteps. Just steps. So there's a direct correlation now. He just made this correlation. He said, when you suffer, you should look to Christ and how he lived his life um, in that. Karen Jobs uh, enlightens us a little bit on this. The call to follow the crucified Messiah was in the long run much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortations to the, uh, revolutionize them would have ever been. So Peter had said, get your, get your swords. Like we know Peter, he's going to cut the ear off the guy. Grab, if you get your swords, get your friends, right? Get your chase shirts on. And let's go start a revolution, right? It would not have been as effective. Um, he, know, he knows something. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed, worship of a crucified God is, uh, oh, I can't read back from back here, eminently political act that subverts a, a, a politics of dominion at its very core. As Christians live out their calling and obedience to God, even within unjust social structures, they're subverting the status quo and opening a new way of thinking. We see this uh, historically. We've seen this in, uh, in countries around the world as Christians go and live there and they're threatened even with death and they are still continuing to proclaim the gospel. And they say, we can't even threaten them with death. What do we have? What do we have to threaten them? Uh, nothing. Because even death doesn't threaten them. Um, it changes. It changes uh, places when we suffer this way. This passage, it mentions um, the word, let me get back to it so you can see it. It mentions example. This word actually doesn't mean like a model or like a, a good option for suffering. This word actually is the same word that was used when they would describe this technique they would use with children in the classroom, where children would put down uh, letters and then they would lay down like tracing paper and they would trace the letters. They get graded on how closely they trace the exact letters. So it's actually... Uh, saying, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you a perfect tracing, uh, you should follow in his footsteps. So it's saying, 
the way he did it is the way we should do it. Not a interesting, maybe I'll use some of his life as an example. Peter here is telling us, trace what he has done. All right, and this is what Christ has done. Peter quotes uh, Isaiah 53, which we today call the uh, passage about the suffering servant. This is actually the only time in Scripture where this passage is directly just said. This Old Testament passage from Isaiah is talking about Jesus. It's one of those cool moments in Scripture when he says, what you read in the Old Testament, what we talked about, that is Jesus who's done this. And he says, this is what it looks like to live that life. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, they made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live forever. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray and now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Just walk through each of these so we can remember how Jesus, this is our example. This is what we can trace in our lives. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When people said things, you remember this? They, they made fun of him. They mocked him. They called him the king of the Jews. He didn't, he didn't say like, no, you, you guys are idiots. That's not true, right? You guys are dumb. Your helmets are dumb that you're wearing, right? He didn't, he didn't come back at them. He would know. The, he would really be able to insult someone, right? Right to the heart. <laughs> Guaranteed, right? He did not do that. Even when just verbally he was suffering. When he suffered, he made no threats. He's, he's God. Like, I can, I can make threats on someone, right? You better watch out, right? When I was a kid, you'd like put your fist up at someone that would indicate, you know, like, I'm going to hit you if you don't stop something, even though I really wasn't going to, but it was just a threat, right? He's God, right? You could say, I will stop your heart this second. Stop, right? Take me off the cross. This is silly. You can do anything, right? Not even a threat. Not even a, you need to stop this, right? He stood there and he suffered. That is, that is hard to do. And why did he do it? Because he entrusted himself to the one who judged justly. He trusted that God was in control. And he, he knew the timeline that one day God would judge evil and take care of that. And he could trust that God was the one taking care of that. So then, because of that, he bore our sins. Because of the way he suffered on a cross, we do not have to suffer in that way eternally. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. The way he suffered actually gave us life. And I think in a way we can suffer with friends, with family. We can endure unjust things. And that actually can bring life to those around us. If we remember back to the beginning of, uh, of tonight, the earlier in, second, in, in 1 Peter 2, 
It says our goal, right, is that people would see our good deeds and they would know God. And I think the way we suffer shows that. And that's what we see at the end here. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So because Christ has suffered in the way he has, without retaliation, without threats, enduring the suffering, actually believing the suffering maybe could even, could even do good and actually in his, did do good. It saved us. It brought us from sin and slaves to sin to now slave servants of God, living righteous lives. We too can enter into suffering because the one who saved us did the same and has rescued us. I love at the end here um, that the language that Peter uses. So up until now, we've heard about emperors ruling over people, masters ruling over their slaves, and now he describes Jesus as our shepherd, right? He's our good shepherd, an overseer of my soul. That's, that's the one that's truly our master. And so the way we suffer gives us an opportunity to allow people to see our hope and see that we follow this master and this shepherd and pray others would know him. Just as um, my friend Jack um, suffered very well, uh, many saw that there was a hope beyond him suffering today in this world, and many wanted to know that hope. And we have an opportunity in how we suffer in our homes and our workplaces with friends to share a hope. Um, this, in my life, has been one of the most powerful ways that I've seen the hope of Christ is in the way people suffer. And we get to do that every day. So just a few questions I want you to consider as we wrap up and then worship together. First question is, how do you view suffering? How do you see it? When you, when you, we leave here today and you go home and we sleep and we wake up and tomorrow you will suffer in maybe little ways, maybe some of us in big ways. How do you view that suffering? Do you see it just as I need to run from that? I need to spend all of my money and all of my time and all my relationships to just eliminate suffering from my life or at least escape it? Or do you see suffering as an opportunity to cling to Christ and to show others that there's a hope? And then how do you suffer? This is a question I had a, a mentor for a long time when I meet with him. This is one of the only questions he asked me because as soon as he asked me this, then I feel really convicted and then I, that's about all he has to ask me. Drew, how are you suffering? And I'll say, eh. I kind of complain a lot. Sometimes I want to retaliate. Um, in my house as a parent, you start thinking about suffering. Um, and if, I'm su- if, we, if my children are making me suffer, which they do, I want to make them suffer because I want us to join in together as a family and suffer, <laughs> right? And in my household, I get to make them suffer because I decide like if they get to watch movies or if they're stuck in their room all night, um, often I don't suffer well. I want to retaliate. I want to threaten people. And uh, lastly, most importantly, do you know the one who suffered for you? You really, I really can't ask you to consider suffering and enduring suffering unless you know the one who will even give you the power and the identity to be able to suffer. And is Jesus your example for suffering? No matter how great my friend Jack is, um, he, would, he would kill me if he knew that I was telling you, you should suffer like Jack. He would tell me to tell you, you should suffer like Jesus. Jesus is a lot better than Jack is. And it's true. It's really true. Um, so each week here at Lower Town, we get the opportunity um, 
to remember that. And this week, very in a very real way, we get to walk up to the tables that are up here uh, and take communion. We get to remember Jesus' broken body, how he suffered on a cross so that you would not suffer on a cross, that you would have eternal life. And you get to see, and you get to drink uh, grape juice. I was here once and it was Gatorade, but I think you guys switched to grape juice. Is that true? It was one time. It's still pretty awesome. It's a legend. Um, we get to walk up here, though, and drink juice to remember this symbol that reminds us that his blood was shed so your blood wouldn't be shed. So he suffered. He endured, he endured threats. He endured uh, abuse. He was actually killed. His blood was shed so that we could have life and that we too could endure. And so we get the opportunity uh, to sing together and worship and take communion today. Uh, you don't have to be a member of Hope to take communion. We just ask you that you are uh, have put your faith in Christ, the one who suffered for you and loves you and endured for you, and one day will come back and make all things right, which is really good news. Let me pray for us. Um, I believe gluten-free is on this side. Is that right? Uh, and just regular old bread is over here. <laughs> um, let me pray for us, and we can worship together as we take communion. Lord, you're good to us. You endured for us and suffered I pray that we would use you as our example. We would trace our lives by your life, and especially in this area of suffering, that we would suffer well. People would ask, I be confused. How has that happened? And Lord, we would um, be able to share the hope, be ready to share the hope that we have in you, and that this life here is not the end, and that we look to a day when all things are made right, and that you will judge and evil will get its justice. We are thankful for that day and that we can look to that day. I pray we worship you well as we uh, sing and take communion and remember how good you are. Amen.